Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We have all The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. We're here with you guys again. Hope you're staying safe question mark staying staying (laughs) safe and staying healthy you know all i can ask is that you make good choices for your life think of other people just think of other consideration other families (laughs) yeah (laughs) don't just think yourself Mm -hmm. oh man well we have a all i'm gonna say on that yeah we have a very exciting episode (laughs) a little bit poignant but before we get Mm. to that vicky we're do we gonna... have anything fun to start this episode off with? This big downer yeah, that I've do. selected. Well, <laughs> I I say that it's not fun. It's also kind of a downer. But you know what? Let's head over to the newsroom. So. Our news this week comes from San Cristobal, Mexico. It's like southern Mexico, where a two and a half year old boy went missing in a market after being like led away. And so police began searching for him. It was a search that took about three weeks. They the the search ended in a very um unexpected way, however, though, when uh, police discovered not just the one boy, but 23 abducted children. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's not fun, Vicky. <laughs> no, it's not. I told you it was going to start with a downer. I'm looking for pizza crimes here, and you give me abducted children, damn it. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared with pizza crimes. <laughs> um So the children, they were all being held at a house where they were being forced to sell, like, trinkets and knickknacks and stuff on the streets. All of the children were between 2 and 15 years old. However, there were three babies found at the house as well between, I think it said, 3 to 20 months. According to the Chiapas state prosecutors, the children, quote, were forced through physical and psychological violence to sell handicrafts in the center of the city and that the kids showed malnutrition and precarious conditions. There are three women who have been taken into custody and they are facing human trafficking and forced labor charges. But it's like one of those stories where it's almost I want to I don't I don't it's almost like they got lucky finding 
all of these people in their search for this one two and a half year old boy, which lucky in a good way. What are you doing with a 20 month old though? Like how much can a 20 month old sell on the street? You know what I mean? They can't even form sentences and barely walk. Like what, what are you going to do with a 20 month old? Well, and I almost wonder, because it was three women that were taken into custody who were living at the house, but I almost wonder maybe if, like, the babies were their kids, so Mm -hmm. they were, you know what I mean? So they were also there. Um, They didn't really specify if they were abducted or if the babies belonged to the women that were living at the house, but I agree. They can't really... I mean, they have the cute factor, I guess, but they can't really like walk around the streets and sell shit. Yeah, it's bananas. So that's our fun opening story. <laughs> it's just gonna go down from um, here. Let's head over to Netflix and Kill, where, of course, of course, we are talking about unsolved mysteries. I mean, Jesus Christ, how could we, we not? <laughs> we couldn't not talk about this, so. Unsolved Mysteries was a series that started, I believe, in the 80s. Yes. And it looked at cases, it's in the title, of Unsolved Mysteries, whether it was (laughs) disappearances or murders or whatever. They've now, in 2020, rebooted the series in such an amazing way. I loved it. Yeah, Um, I liked it. Although it did... it gave me a little bit different of a feel. Like, I wasn't as creeped out as I was yeah. by the original. But yeah. that's okay. <laughs> so, before we go any farther, we are going to say spoiler alert. Yeah, hard spoiler alert. Hard, yeah. A lot of people I was seeing online were comparing it to Dateline, actually, rather than, like, the classic Unsolved Mysteries. It's far yeah. more... Interview yeah, based. except for the last episode, but definitely yes, the other the other ones. Yes. <laughs> so let me give you guys a little overview. There's six episodes up now with more to come. The first episode, Mystery on the Rooftop, is the disappearance of Ray Rivera and a strange hole in a hotel ceiling. Episode two is called 13 Minutes. It's the disappearance of Patrice Endress from her beauty shop, who was later found deceased, um, and she disappeared in a period of 13 minutes. Episode three, which is probably my personal favorite, it's called House of Terror. It's about an aristocratic French family, the Dupont de Ligones uh, family, found murdered and buried underneath their house with the father missing and suspected of their murders. We love some familicide. <laughs> yes. Well, and it was also like, surprise, we're talking in French now. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> <Like, Ooh>, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is subtitled, but it was oh, so good. Um Episode four, it's called No No Ride Home. It's the disappearance of Alonzo Brooks from a house party. His body was found near a creek a month later in what is suspected to be a hate crime. Episode five, Berkshire's UFO, which is tales from Berkshire County, Massachusetts, about UFOs uh, that were in the area in 1969. And episode six is called Missing Witness. It's about Lena Chapin, who had discovered or who had witnessed her mother dispose of her stepfather's body and had threatened to come forward with the information. But pretty much as soon as she turned 18, um, she had vanished, leaving her child behind in a very suspicious way. So that's kind of Mm -hmm. what you have to look forward to. Um, Let's talk about this, though. Let's unpack this a little bit, because 
as I'm watching through these, I mean, obviously you have your classic like disappearances, murders, and then there was a UFO story, and I was like, what? Classic. <laughs> classic unsolved mysteries. You guys throw in it's a random sh- spontaneous combustion or a UFO story. <laughs> Which is why we love it, but I was yes. also like not ready for it. I was like, "Is this about UFOs right now?" <laughs> and I was the opposite, and I was like, "Oh yes!" Like even though UFO stories scare, like the thought of aliens, it's not scary. It's just like I know it's gonna happen, guys. Like it's gonna. Happen. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to see it. <laughs> but like that to me is like the quintessential uh, unsolved mysteries uh is that like random weirdness thrown in there so i was absolutely here for that episode <laughs> true yeah and i will say since this can and this would have by the time this comes out it will probably have been out for about a month i think since the series has aired on netflix they've actually had as is the case a lot of times with unsolved mysteries a ton of tips and things flooding in yeah it was just what yesterday or the day before yesterday they're reopening the alonzo brooks case yeah yeah and they've already had somebody in chicago who had taken a picture of a man who looks very similar to xavius uh, or i'm sorry xavier uh dupont de ligones Mm. um who fled after the what they suspect him for the murder of his family. Yeah. Uh, and it was a man who had a very heavy French accent. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he's just, he's been gone. They haven't found his body. They don't know where he is. He's been gone for years and years and years. Like, that to me is crazy. I can't wait for the updates where it's like, update. Yeah. That's also my favorite part of Unsolved Mysteries. I will say, if you want more information about any of these cases, you can head over to Reddit, go to the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit, because Netflix has actually provided the subreddit with a whole metric shit ton of resources (laughs) and material and interviews that weren't included in the show. There's literally like a Google Drive where they dropped all of this stuff that they had that was like extra that wasn't included in the show that people have been kind of going through. Yeah, Um, they're really leaning into the armchair detective stuff. Yeah, which is great. I think that's a really good use of like, it's a really good way to leverage ordinary people. Um, Mm -hmm. who oftentimes have different perspectives than law enforcement or are maybe able to spend more time on it than some law enforcement, unfortunately. But um, I just kind of, I I haven't had a chance to sit and go through any of that information yet, but I was like, man, that's really nice that they just like tossed it all in a Google Drive and gave it to the user base, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, check it out. Unsolved Mysteries. Like I said, there's going to be some more episodes, I think, total for at least this series they were doing 10 or 12 um yeah so we'll have some more to look forward to i believe later in the year maybe the beginning of next year but uh do you have any any final thoughts on unsolved mysteries no i like it a lot it did give me a little bit see it i felt more like it was america's most wanted in Mm -hmm. the way that I, i kind of saw the first couple episodes but definitely when we got to the ufo and i was like this is classic unsolved mysteries like this is exactly i wish they would have done you know how unsolved mysteries used to use the people in the reenactments i wish they would have done a callback on at least one of the episodes 
God, that would have been amazing. I was like, <laughs> I was like, kudos to them for not using actual evidence in their reenactments anymore because that was a bad call. That was a terrible uh, call on Solved Mysteries. What we little we knew back then, you know. <laughs> Yeah, if you guys didn't know that, it's they they used to um not only use like the actual people involved in the stories in their reenactments, but they would get the literal evidence, the actual evidence from the police and use them in their reenactments, often destroying or damaging evidence so it couldn't be used again. Like uh, not a good call. <laughs> yeah, it's also like I don't know why people who are in these cases were like this is a great idea. I'm going to be in the reenactment of my daughter getting, you know, murdered or disappeared. And it's like that isn't that just like causing even more trauma to those people That's to relive what I would those think. moments on television? That's what I would think. It's like add another 6 years to your therapy there. Yeah. But I mean, it gave for like genuine reactions, though. People were like, True. I feel like you could really feel the confusion that a lot of the people were going through in what was happening to them. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a fine line between like art and <laughs> victimization in Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I'm glad they um, made a little departure from some of the bad practices in 2020 yes. hindsight, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have been perfect for the UFO episode, though. Do a callback reenactment yes. for that. That would have been oh my God. hilariously amazing. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not producers. <laughs> yeah. No, we should. Maybe we should be, but we're not right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. If you guys weren't aware, there is um, a lot of. Uh, usage and hints in our theme music from the Unsolved Mysteries music. That was the one point I made when we were starting this podcast is I want a callback to Unsolved Mysteries. I don't care about anything else. That is it what was, I want. It was uh, <laughs> Janelle's special request with yes. uh, which Jason Zachshevsky, the Enigma, totally. She delivered. Totally delivered on, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for our listeners. Personally, there isn't a whole lot of like really terrible stuff in mine, like violence mm-hmm. and stuff, but I don't know about you. Well, <laughs> uh, considering the current climate in which we are in, I um, maybe shouldn't have covered this case right now, but then again, you know, corruption is important to cover. So, um, if yes. you are sensitive about stories of um, police, not necessarily brutality, but adjacent to brutality, <laughs> uh, maybe not yeah. listen to this right now. But yes, I selected for this episode to cover general corruption cases because I have an interest in that. I, if you've listened to us before, we've covered John Burge and that whole uh, the Chicago corruption But I wanted to go a little bit outside of Chicago, not too far, but just a little, um, and cover a case. Don't worry, we will be returning to Chicago. (laughs) Yes. Don't worry. Unbeknownst to us, we both did cases in Illinois about corruption. What does that say about our state? I mean, mean, honestly, you you cannot talk about corruption. There's like some big place big heavy hitter places that will Mm -hmm. always be brought up and chicago unfortunately is one of them you know it's like synonymous just really illinois in general because we've had a lot of corruption within our state government as well and then you hear about those tiny corruption cases like dixon illinois 
and their tiny government. <laughs> so yes, I, I feel like um, maybe we're on a, a burial ground and this is all just karmic or something. I don't know. Um, I don't know what it could possibly be. Be karma for possibly be we're on, <laughs> we're on stolen land full of dead bodies. No, we shouldn't that's be here. Not it. Um, <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> but uh, this case was actually brought to my attention by Sweet Baby Bo, and he, he brought he brought home uh, to me a an old newspaper to read that had uh, articles in it of the case. So I have that, and I will po- post up pictures of the actual, like, the newspaper is very old. So you guys can see, like, I dove deep. I, I went into archives, and I've got information for this Ooh. episode. Um, it takes place in Elgin, which is where I was born, and I grew up to a degree <laughs> um, on, yep. on the sweet, sweet Fox River. They got a big old mental hospital there. Yes, there's a lot. Elgin's very fascinating. Mm. Borden uh, milk products came from there, like the Elgin Watch Factory. There's a lot of history, um, mm-hmm. but there's also a, an even deeper uh, trench, I guess, <laughs> of corruption. Um, yeah, Elgin. I feel like because it's we're so close to Chicago, and there's a lot of people that come out from Chicago to live in Elgin, and it has a very similar like makeup. To Chicago, there's a lot of similar issues with corruption within Elgin. Uh, maybe not as much as there used to be in the 80s and 90s, but definitely still a significant amount. So I wanted to discuss this because it was kind of a landmark case um, when it came to hiring practices for the police department. Okay. We will be discussing the case of Herschel Glenn, uh, the Elgin police officer who murdered 18-year-old James Wright and 20-year-old Lillian Final in 1982. Now, Herschel Glenn um, was a 21-year-old, fresh out of the you know school system, like didn't really know what he was doing with his life, and decided to become a police officer in 1979 and began his um, police work in the Elgin Police Department. And we're going to bounce around a little bit here. Okay. I took this timeline directly from court transcripts uh, that are available and we'll be linking to. um, So you can go through. I kind of took little snippets. There is boxes and boxes and files and files that you can find online that have been digitized and you can read through from beginning to finish. Oh, man copious amounts of documents. That sounds like my dream. (laughs) It was very interesting. I love a good collection of court documents. You know that, girl. Mm -hmm. For this one in particular, we're going to start with a couple of eyewitness accounts, and then we're going to kind of go into the death of James and Lillian, and then exactly what happened coming out of this. It's going to be, you're going to be screaming a lot of what the fucks. Okay, I will be prepared. (laughs) All right. So on the evening of May 7th, 1982, at approximately 1.30 a.m., Lillian Final and James Wright left the home of Carol Miller in Wright's Red El Camino to go purchase a pizza. Final and Wright never returned. At approximately 2.45 a.m. the same evening, Elgin police officer John Darr was patrolling through Lord's Park in Elgin. He observed two vehicles. One vehicle, a red El Camino, had their interior lights on. 
Dar returned 20 to 25 minutes later and observed the same El Camino again. He ran the registration check on the vehicle and learned that it belonged to Spencer Wright. Dar searched the park area for the vehicle's occupants because the car's interior light remained on and the keys were in the ignition. Dar found a woman's purse on the passenger's floor containing the identification of Lillian Final. Dar also found a jacket and a wallet belonging to James Wright on the driver's seat. So we have an empty car, all of their personal belongings in it, the interior lights on. So it's already very mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're going to go back in time a little bit. This was happening at 2.45. Around 2.15 a.m., a witness who lives one block from the Stuart Warner plant in Elgin heard a series of gunshots. At 3.45, several witnesses heard shots ring out near the Scoberg store. Witnesses saw a man standing near a body lying on the ground. Kane County police officers proceeded to the Scoreberg store at approximately 358 on May 8th, 1982. Upon arrival, they found the lifeless body of a fully dressed white male who was later determined to be James Wright. The victim had received seven gunshot wounds with three to the head and four to the right shoulder. The cause of death was determined to be multiple gunshot wounds to the head they also found an Elgin Police Department badge on the ground next to the body. Ooh. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. Oh, my God. At approximately 9 a.m. the next morning, Elmer Laufenberger, which is the most amazing name ever, who was a yeah, local that's pretty farmer, good. was planting <laughs> corn. Okay, this is the most Midwestern aspect of the story. Elmer Laffenberger was planting corn on land behind the west side of the Stuart (laughs) Warner plant building in Elgin. Laffenberger discovered an unclothed female body in the field. The body had on socks and shoes, and there was something around the victim's neck. Laffenberger called the police, and when Elgin police detectives arrived at 1045 a.m., they observed a female lying on her back. A white bra was around her neck, assorted clothing laying near her body. The victim, identified as Lillian Final, had received three gunshot wounds to the head and one each into the abdomen and thigh. She also appeared to have been assaulted. I gotta say, my first thought was, thank God he didn't run her over while he was planting corn in the field. Yeah. Because that could have been real messy and Mm -hmm. not good. Well... I feel like you might be able to see a body lying out in the open with clothes strewn about it I'd like, at a pretty good distance. I'd like to hope so, because if you're plant, I mean, obviously, if you're planting, there isn't anything in the field, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what the visibility is once you get into a tractor, so. Yeah, I mean, this is 1982, so it's not like the big, huge combines and thrashers that we have now. They're much, much smaller and not computerized, so. Yeah. I know too much. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to go back and we're going to kind of see things from uh, Herschel Glenn's perspective now. Okay. On that night, Glenn went to the Elgin Ramada Inn for a few drinks alone. He remained at the Ramada Inn from 9 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. During this time, he ordered several drinks and made advances towards several of the inn's female employees, even following one of the employees into the ladies' restroom. He was ultimately asked to leave the lounge. After leaving, Glenn drove around, eventually landing at Lord's Park in Elgin, which at this time was a very popular lover's lane. He came upon the El Camino and then attacked. In the struggle, Glenn dropped his police badge and other personal effects at the scene. Not just his police badge, his wallet. 
Oh. Uh, at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> yep. At 4.30 okay. a.m. that morning, he called the department to report his police badge lost. Now, this happens after the body of James Wright was already found. So after he reported the badge missing, an off- officer was dispatched to his home and observed his car still warm in the driveway. They made a point to say that the officer got out and touched the hood of the car. Okay. So <laughs> the following morning, Glenn failed to report to roll call. His uh, superior phoned him and he said he'd be right in. Then an officer was dispatched to escort him. Upon his arrival, his gun and nightstick were taken from him and he was Mirandized. A search of his apartment uncovered a 38 snub nose revolver, a blue sport coat, a beige jacket, jeans, a green sport shirt, and a beige shirt. Anderson found in the defendant's jean pockets a Ramada in receipt, a live round of 38 caliber ammunition, and three spent 38 casings. So, oh, they ran ballistics, and evidence established that the defendant's 38 caliber fired the bullets recovered from the bodies of both James Wright and Lillian Final. The same gun also fired spent cartridges that were recovered near the Stuart Warner building, so shots that didn't actually penetrate anybody. They also found hairs of Lillian Final on Glenn's clothing. I do find it interesting that he decided to pick up some of the spent casings, but didn't have enough thought to make sure he still had his badge and wallet. We are going to discover why there's some gaps or supposed gaps in his memory. <laughs> okay. Because this all up. sounds very suspicious. This is where it's going to get real fucking wild. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. So, <laughs> he gets charged with the deaths of uh, Wright and Final. The defense presented expert testimony to establish that as a result of exposure to carbon monoxide poisoning in February of 1982, the defendant was unable to conform his conduct to the law or appreciate the criminality of his actions on May 7th, 1982. Uh, so, they went with a carbon monoxide-induced insanity plea. <laughs> okay. I have so many questions, but continue. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought forth a a witness to test or not really a witness uh, someone to testify a neurologist named Muhammad Sarwar the neurologist testified that he interpreted the magnetic response images which is an MRI scan to take of uh, that was taken of the defendant's brain and he analyzed these in September now Dr. Sarwar concluded that part of the defendant's brain had been affected by his exposure to carbon monoxide the defendant specifically suffered the damage to the left cerebral hemisphere, including the hippocampus. The damaged portion of the defendant's brain are interconnected with the limbic system, which is involved in determining how emotion and behavior control rational behavior. Now, on cross-examination, Dr. Sarwar admitted that he only prepared a one-page report, which excluded any references to any injury to the hippocampus. Dr. Sarwar stated that he did not report damage to the hippocampus when he initially reviewed the scans. He also admitted that he did not review all of the scans taken of the defendant's brain, but limited his opinion only to the damaged parts. Okay. So the uh, prosecution also brought in several other neurologists, psychologists, and behaviorists to look at the uh, scans of his brain, and they determined that there was no damage whatsoever even closely related to carbon monoxide poisoning that he may have gotten. Now, what happened was 
he was working on his vehicle in a garage and the door was kind of shut too far and he passed out from carbon monoxide poisoning. His live-in girlfriend okay. at the time found him and rushed him to the hospital. Okay. He was only in the garage for maybe two hours. So that was determined that there was not enough time for him to have carbon monoxide poisoning to actually affect his brain. And there's very little evidence that even prolonged amounts of carbon monoxide poisoning affect a person's brain. Okay, that was going to be my question <laughs> is, does it have one, I feel like if it were going to do anything to your brain, it would have to be like, repeated, extended mm -hmm. um, exposure. But also, yes. can it even cause, like, holes in your brain? That didn't sound it right. It doesn't cause brain damage, like, the way that they're trying to make it seem. What it can cause, okay. um, and they have studied this in people who worked in, like, the car industry in the 60s to the 80s, because obviously those cars let off a lot more carbon monoxide. Yeah. Was that it can cause issues with your memory over repeated exposure. Okay. Like you lose some of your short term memory. That's really yeah, the but I imagine that would be, I imagine that would be like repeated exposure mm -hmm. for hours at a time, not like two hours once in a garage. Yeah. What it really affects is not. It affects more your um, your lungs and also your intestines and your stomach because it actually, like, repeated exposure to carbon dioxide makes you nauseous a lot. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. Um, but there's not really okay. a whole lot of, like, issues with your brain being, like, damaged. So gotcha. they also brought forth uh, Glenn's live-in girlfriend, colleagues, and superiors to the stand to talk about his behavior, and none of them said that he had any sort of change in behavior since the incident of the carbon monoxide poisoning. So they were all saying that okay. he was pretty much exactly the same as he was before, as he was after. There was no change in his be behavior whatsoever. Now, Glenn was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in May of 1987. Now, this is not at all where the story ends. Of course not. Uh, this is where we start realizing that maybe the way that we obtain police officers isn't correct. So there was a lawsuit Ooh. filed, <laughs> a lawsuit filed Ooh, against girl, the city I of Elgin and the police department. And this lawsuit charged that Elgin authorities routinely ignored the results of pre-employment screening tests, including polygraph and psychological exams when hiring police officers. Perfect. The lawyers of the families of the victims filed documents that date from 1974 to 1980 that showed Elgin hired 15 officers, including Herschel Glenn, who were rated as high security risks on a test designed to measure trustworthiness. So... God. <laughs> If you're familiar with hiring practices of police departments, it has changed somewhat to a degree. But in order to become a police officer, you have to go through a series of tests. Mm -hmm. They're physical, psychological. They try to measure every aspect of what it takes to become a police officer. Yeah. And especially right now in this current climate, we have heard uh, a lot of stories about the particular kind of behavior, the tip atypical behavior of a police officer, or that it attracts people to that profession who are not really going to be good for it. Yeah, it comes with a certain amount of power 
and a certain degree of kind of arrogance is required, I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> so according to the police board, they, they looked at the tests and, um, they said that the tests are not given on a pass fail and that a person doesn't know how to read the results unless you knew what you were doing. So they were saying that the people, the lawyers who brought forth this information didn't really understand the scope of what these tests were and how they were used in hiring processes. Now, according to the firm that designed the tests given to the prospective EPD candidates, that's not true. Oh, God. Now, this is a quote from the Chicago Tribune article in January of 1987. Our tests are easy to read, written in layman's language. Our tests are not written in jargon or psychological terms. They are written in plain lay language, which simply evaluates the risk of the person. Now, they also stated that the test results indicate, among other things, whether a person is extremely high risk, high risk, moderate risk, or low risk. In the pre-employment test results submitted to the court, one officer now, who was currently, as this case was happening, on the police force, was described as very nervous, impulsive, not to be counted on under pressure. Oh, yeah. Perfect for police. uh, Totally. (laughs) Another Elgin police officer was described as highly emotional, very marginal, may have problem acting under pressure. Again, perfect for police. It's exactly what you want um, when you're <laughs> describing on, someone who is a cop with a gun. Yeah. Um, one of the officer candidates who was rated as high risk security risk, according to the documents submitted in court, was fired less than a month after being sworn in. The officer was accused of spending money for himself that was to be used for an undercover drug investigation and also of disclosing the names of informants and of mishandling confiscated drugs, which is just a special way of oh saying he used them. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Now, Herschel Glenn was hired as an Elgin police officer in 1979. His psychological assessment done by the firm stated that Glenn's intellectual abilities are far below average when compared with police officers in general. The report also added he is impulsive, indecisive, and inclined to make careless mistakes. The report stated finally that Glenn was far below average candidate. Now. Oh, great. Glenn's test results also showed that he admitted in the polygraph that he had to take um, that uh, he had paid a bribe to a Chicago police officer once, that he had shoplifted as a teenager, that he had illegally carried a gun while driving a pizza truck, and that he had purchased and used marijuana as recently as six months before he took the test. Oh, my God. So we have a scope of behavior that is very uh, oppositional to what we would think a police officer should be. Yeah. Glenn then took a polygraph again and was found to have given false responses, according to the test examiner. So he (laughs) was just, you know, involved in all these illegal activities, and they wanted to give him a benefit of a doubt and gave him a second polygraph, and they discovered that now he was lying even more. So it was noted that the person who designed the test, he had a doctorate in psychology, and they had he retired and did significant amounts of police screening since 1952. So he had done hundreds okay. of studies to show that only about one out of five candidates should ever become a police officer. Which is a terrifying statistic. Like, that is. is... 
And this is in 1987. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know what? And honestly, um, I'd be curious if one, if that has changed uh, one way or another now, Mm -hmm. but also I'd be curious, you know, if only one of five candidates should ever become a police officer, does that mean that the police are hiring, you know, maybe four out of five instead of the one out of five that they should be? You know, I'd be curious to see, like, what percentage of people who apply and go through this process are hired on versus yeah, how they many didn't, should be. You know what I they mean? They didn't give that percentage. Um, but yeah. from my understanding is they hired people from the low risk all the way to the moderately high risk and left out yeah. the extremely high risk. So if you think Yikes. about that, that's a five point scale. So they're picking one to four people basically out of that five point scale. <laughs> so they're almost picking, yeah, and I, they're picking like four out of five candidates. <laughs> and I wonder if that's like, if the thinking behind that is, well, is, is that they'd be able to train them out of that? You know what I mean? Like, right. Yes. And that is usually the general consensus is like, we have a tight training program that will whip these cadets into shape sort of a thing. But the truth of the matter is if you are already predisposed to illegal behaviors and you don't have essentially a moral compass, you're not just going to magically grow a moral compass. That's something that is, you know, there's a whole nature versus nurture argument um, and the deluge of right from wrong, right? So yeah, that's not something that you can just instill in a person in the six months of training that you receive to become a police officer. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, and I understand that there, you know, there is difficulty with hiring police officers. Nobody with an actual, any sort of common sense wants to do that job. Um, It's very high stress. You're on the job when you're not on the job. And there's a reason why police officers only really work for 20 years and then retire. Right. I have my own personal thoughts and feelings about police departments and whether they should exist or not. And in what capacity, that's a whole separate conversation. But if we want to look at the effectiveness of police departments and we want to look at training and hiring practices, this is a great example as to why there needs to be a complete restructuring Even in today's standards, because this did change Mm -hmm. how the Elgin Police Department hired and to a degree trained their police officers. But it still doesn't solve that problem, which is rampant across every police department that exists. Right. So we have to ask these questions as why does this job attract people who are considered undesirable for the job? Why, when things like this happen... Are we not completely restructuring training programs and hiring practices? Why does it have to wait until after somebody has been killed for that to happen? Yeah. And what is the true role of a police officer? Mm-hmm. Because if they're in all of these high risk situations, we need to look at, do they need to be doing this versus this? Do they need to be you know, out on calls for people who have mental health issues or do they actually just need to be doing criminal investigations? So we have to take all of this into consideration because this case I I found was important because it's highlighting 
that there is a carelessness when it comes to hiring people in positions of power, not just police departments. There is a need to just fill positions. There is a need to just get people in the door. And even when it Mm -hmm. comes to like, if you want to think of like aldermans and city councils and stuff like that, if you have a smile and a wave and a known name, you'll get in no matter how terrible of a person you are. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) There's a, like this reading this just, I don't know why I do this to myself, but it's just like (laughs) constant, constant rage. All the time. I was going to say, you read, you read the things that you know are just really going to make you mad. Uh, I just I just can't stop doing it to myself. You're a glutton for punishment. I am. I truly am. But you know what? Being in a constant state of rage is going to make me live longer. So. <laughs> so the article also stated that there were additional documents filed in court that showed that police officers have been hired by Elgin police after admitting... Uh, use of drugs such as cocaine, marijuana, hashish, and peyote. I was like, Jesus Christ, who the fuck got peyote and Elgin? Uh, right. <laughs> uh, acceptance of bribes while working in law enforcement elsewhere. Payment of bribes to police officers on traffic cases, fixing traffic cases, stealing merchandise and money from employers, use of excessive force on civilians while working in law enforcement elsewhere, and being drunk as as many as 30 times in a year. <laughs> Damn. Um, yeah. So Damn. there was also a considerable amount of DUI cases that were thrown out against police officers that mm. actually became a whole separate issue. And that led to, um, <laughs> I'm going to put heavy quotes on this training in, uh, what was it called? It was like alcohol and me or something like that. Oh my God. It was like a special training program about the abuse of alcohol. Um, so that's oh, exciting. I'm sure it helped extensively. <laughs> so, I mean, it appears that this particular job, especially in Elgin was attracting a not so desirable demographic for the most part. Now the city of Elgin did settle for a whopping $1.5 million in 1987 money That was split between the two families. The city stated in this settlement that they did not admit or accept the findings and decided to settle because the two insurance companies that they had been working with were going bankrupt. One was actually already bankrupt Uh and the other one was closing as well. So it was deemed as an economic decision to settle with the families. I do. You know what? It's a great attempt to wiggle out of having to accept any responsibility for a situation created by your city. <laughs> like Yes. So there was a significant change in police practices in hiring for the Elgin Police Department. They did go back and start um, doing a lot more uh, risk assessment when it came to uh, the hiring practices. They also uh, kind of revamped some of their training programs and added a couple extra months onto training and um, being with another vetted, a veteran police officer, uh, kind of in a sort of, you know, mentor program. Yeah. Now, this is not where the story ends, sadly. Oh, of now course this, not. This year, the year of the COVID. Our year, the, the year. lord of the COVID. It's <laughs> <is> so horrible, <laughs> horrible. <laughs> The year of the COVID, this horrible, horrible year. Uh, this year, May 2020, Herschel Glenn was released from prison on medical furlough due to COVID-19. Oh. 
Okay. Now, I couldn't find any additional information on this. So uh, we don't know where he is, who he's with, what the medical issue was that he was furloughed for. Um, So for all we know, the psycho could be roaming around northern Illinois, free as a jaybird. Oh, great. But he's also not the only person who was released on medical furlough due to COVID-19. There is a plethora of people who were convicted for murder, rape, all sorts of things that were released from prison on Mm -hmm. medical furlough due to COVID-19. If anyone has heard anything about Herschel Glenn's release, let us know. Maybe you've seen him around Elgin or who knows, Aurora? I don't know. (laughs) That's another town like Elgin. I I wonder if, because isn't, I mean, medical furlough implies that you'll be returning at some point. You would think. (laughs) You would think that. But um, as it stands now, nobody has returned back to prison. Uh, It is only you know, July going into August. So who knows? But there is an anticipation that this is going to ramp back up again. So I cannot foresee them putting people back into prison with the potential of increased risk. So, well, I mean, they wouldn't put them back right away, but I think eventually that's the plan. But obviously, you know, we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. So Yes, and I just read an article the other day that it's expected to last (laughs) at least two years. At the least. Maybe that means that I can do all of my college classes online. I know. I'm going (laughs) to graduate from I'm going to graduate from graduate school not having (laughs) been in school. (laughs) That's kind of amazing. It is kind of ridiculous if you think about it. But that is the case of Herschel Glenn. Oh man. And, uh, I, yeah, I hate everything, so. <laughs> That's fucked up. Okay, so we could not have an episode about corruption without talking about Chicago. I mean, realistically, it just can't happen. (laughs) Yeah. So the history of corruption within the judicial system in Cook County goes all the way back to the 1920s, if not further than that. There's a history of indictments being brought and yielding zero convictions. The main uh, qualification for office was loyalty and favors to the Cook County Democratic Party, which was a practice that was normalized by many, 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 many officials. According to Foreign Policy, quote, a 1970 analysis of a sample of Chicago judges by a longtime student of its politics found 12 former political operatives, two former law partners of the mayor, and 59 patronage hires in either the county prosecutor's office or the city law department. Many of these individuals had risen through the ranks doing ethically questionable favors for party leaders, arranging government jobs for party supporters, and finding no-bid government contracts for campaign contributors, end quote. Surprise, surprise. Right. Yeah. Now, if you listen to our episode on Chicago corruption, you will know this is by this is not by any means a new phenomenon. Interestingly enough, the whole reason the 
corruption within Cook County uh, judicial, the Cook County judicial judicial system became a focus of an FBI investigation was due largely in part to another political scandal that rocked the nation, one we all know and love, Watergate. <laughs> it it really kind of like brought to light the incredible amount of corruption within American government and kind of while we all knew it was there, it kind of caused public corruption to be brought to the forefront of public focus. For a while, it was something that everybody was talking about because it it's almost like it couldn't be ignored anymore now that it was in the news. There's a couple of other factors, too. I kind of – I had to kind of condense this down into a little bit because there's so much <laughs> uh, to talk about with Chicago and it's – corrupt judicial system. But the FBI began looking at Chicago with close scrutiny and decided to investigate using moles and undercover agents, which at the time, it was a practice that was relatively new and needed the approval from Washington due to strict guidelines in place to prevent abuse of these tactics. So the idea was to have an attorney wear a wire to record the bribery of clerks and judges to fix the outcome of cases, but they had to have total control over most aspects of the complaint. So their grandmaster plan was to have an FBI agent faking criminal conduct in view of police officers. So Hmm. to make it almost as obvious as they could to be like, please arrest me. (laughs) Um, Am I doing crimes now? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Once they were arrested, the quote unquote defendant would hire another FBI agent to represent them as their attorney. Now, the FBI lawyer would then attempt to bribe an official to have the case drop. And this all had to happen in specific districts. So they knew which courts the defendants would land in. And they were trying to get these cases in front of specific judges who Hmm. were rumored to be corrupt. So this would actually be a little bit more difficult than they initially thought. In the beginning, the investigation was looking into traffic court corruption. And so Uh, Trying to get people arrested for drunk driving was their first thought. And agents went into the specified areas and attempted to get arrested. But more often than not, the agents were let off with warnings due in large part to a refusal to arrest middle-aged white men. Oh, God. (laughs) Of course. They – I mean, they talk about doing it sort of – they were doing it in view of police – but they were doing it in a way that wasn't so obvious. And every time they were getting warnings until finally they were they there was a story in one of the articles I was reading of one of the agents literally jumping on the hood of a police car and like screaming obscenities at a cop. And when he he thought he had gotten a summons to uh, gotten been written a summons to go to court and when he looked at the summons it was still a warning like oh my god yeah so eventually these crimes were expanded when it was discovered that the corruption was not specific to traffic court of course just having people arrested and then get off on bribes meant nothing if you couldn't get recordings of the judges and the other players conspiring together 
Enter Terry Hake, who was a young Cook County prosecutor who had seen for himself the unlevel playing field that he was faced with each day. And Hake had gone to his bosses and filed a complaint regarding the bribes and corruption that he had been seeing. The FBI learned of this complaint and decided he was going to be the one that they should recruit to kind of be their man on the inside because he had already seen it and already been complaining about it. Now, again, from foreign policy, quote, to develop a cover story, his boss, state's attorney Bernard Carey, demoted him and assigned him to low-level drug cases, an assignment considered to have little prestige by prosecutors. Hake then let it be known how bitter he was about the demotion and soon worked his way into the confidences of narcotics court staff, end quote. The FBI then had him wear a wire uh, to record these transactions. And after a couple of months of working undercover, Hake was able to get audio of court staff implicating narcotics court judge Wayne Olson. The FBI decided that this was their opportunity to go a little bit deeper and plant a bug in the judge's office, which was a huge deal because judges are seen as this sort of, I don't want to say untouchable, but they're kind of this like, you know, obviously in positions of power, Mm -hmm. in a very respected position, it's almost like you just don't try to mess with that at all. And especially in a judge's chambers, which is meant to be this private area. They were able to get a federal judge to agree to this plan, uh, which did set an interesting precedent. It was actually the first time in United States history that a judge had his office bugged, but it also allowed them to get incredibly valuable information that would help them out in future court cases. Now, because he had earned the trust of his corrupt colleagues, Hake continued to uh, work undercover, which by that time had been moved to a quote-unquote, private practice, which, again, was a a ruse set up by the FBI. Of course. Yeah. They were pretty good at, like, now let's do this thing. Now let's do this thing. Yeah, they have a lot of leeway. The law doesn't necessarily apply to them. (laughs) Yeah. Not in the same ways, for sure. While he was at his newly set up private practice, he represented defendants who, again, were actually FBI agents in many of these like fake cases. In total, over the course of approximately three years, Hake was able to make 368 recordings, totaling around 1,500 hours that implicated over 50 lawyers and court staff and dozens of judges, and would eventually testify in 23 trials, many times against his friends and colleagues. This whole three-year investigation is referred to as Operation Greylord. It is called that because Greylord is a reference to the the wigs that judges and practicing attorneys wear in England. You know, like the fancy Mm -hmm. curly wigs that I'm pretty sure they still wear. They do. It's absurd. It's one of those weird practices that has just never gone away. I don't get it, but eh, whatever. The FBI had help from a few other court officials, including Chicago attorney Robert Cooley and Judge Brockton Lockwood. 
Judge Lockwood had been reassigned to Chicago from the courts in southern Illinois to help with a backlog of cases in Chicago. But it didn't take long for Judge Lockwood to be approached by a friend with a request to fix a case, which he had opted not to do. In 1981, Judge Lockwood began working with the Justice Department to acquire even more recordings of corrupt lawyers and clerks. And Judge Lockwood was able to procure uh, hundreds of hours of recordings, which helped the FBI to pinpoint targets for their stings. Now, this this is where it gets I, – I don't want to say this is where it gets weird, but for me, it's like, <laughs> this is where it gets weird a little bit. <laughs> Attorney Robert Cooley's role in Operation Greylord was a little different. He didn't decide to work with the FBI until around 1986. And the operation, uh, Operation Greylord, started in, I believe, 1981 and later evolved into Operation Gambit, which I'll talk about a little a little later. So he had actually started to work with the FBI around the time that Greylord was finishing up. And when he approached the FBI, he had informed them that he personally had paid around 30 judges to acquit his clients, who most of which were organized crime folks, and had asked the FBI not to use that information to prosecute him. So he's like, I'll help you out and give you all the stuff. Just like, don't prosecute me. (laughs) So the FBI again used Cooley uh, to work as an undercover lawyer, setting him up with a hidden mic to record not only the bribes that court officials were taking, but to obtain recordings of members of organized crime uh, in Chicago admitting to the crimes that they had committed. Thanks to Cooley's recordings, the FBI was able to indict Judge Frank J. Wilson for his role in accepting a bribe of more than $10,000 to acquit mob enforcer Harry the Hook Aylman of murder, a bribe which Cooley himself had initially set up. God. Uh, This also led to the retrial of Harry Aylman, who... Uh, was convicted of murder. Ailman is still the only person in U.S. history to ever be acquitted of murder and then retried and convicted, something that the Supreme Court decided was not considered double jeopardy because the first trial was found to be corrupt, which I found, I was like, huh. I didn't even know that there was a single trial that had gone forward like that. And I was like, interesting. Yeah, that was very weird. So as a result of Operation Greylord, 93 people were indicted, including 17 judges, 48 lawyers, 10 deputy sheriffs, 8 policemen, 8 court officials, and state legislator James DeLeo. Of all of those indictments, 15 judges, 47 lawyers, and 24 police officers and court personnel were either convicted or pleaded guilty to their charges. Charges varied from case to case and included things like mail fraud, racketeering, extortion under color of official right, and obstruction of justice, among a ton of other things. I mean, some of these people had, you know, 20 or 30 charges uh, attached to their indictment because they took a lot of bribes. Yo. Yeah. So (laughs) many bribes. (laughs) 
the longest sentence was received by Circuit Judge Reginald Holzer, who had accepted over $200,000 in bribes, um, and he received an 18-year sentence. Unfortunately, there is sort of a human cost to doing something like this, and Mm -hmm. three of those uh, people who were indicted committed suicide before any of the proceedings began. There were also some cases of completely unfounded claims where attorneys were indicted with little to no evidence. I think there were some really good attorneys that kind of just got wrapped in with all of the stuff that was happening when the FBI actually didn't have any evidence that they had ever given or taken any bribes or tried to do any of that, which is also really unfortunate for the people who are um, out there practicing law the right way. (laughs) Ultimately, Operation Greylord is considered a major success in fighting corruption in the Chicago court system. Thanks to the investigation in 1984, a special commission on the administration of justice in Cook County was formed in order to look at the Cook County courts and issue recommendations the commission, which was known as the Solovi Commission after its leader, attorney Gerald Solovi, the commission issued a total of 165 recommendations for the courts, uh, although there is still some questions as to whether all of their recommendations were actually put in practice and whether the ones that were have made any sort of difference or not. Mm-hmm. But Operation Greylord was only like the tip of the iceberg as far as the FBI's involvement in the Cook County court system is concerned. It spawned other investigations, including Operation Silver Shovel, um, which I think we might have talked about in our uh, political, at least a little bit in our political, uh, or I'm sorry, our Chicago corruption episode. Operation Incubator, both of which were aimed at political corruption. Operation Lantern, which was an investigation into corrupt purchasing practices. Operation Gambit, which um, kind of grew out of this Operation Greylord and looked at general corruption, but a lot of it had to do with organized uh, crime. And Operation Safe Bet, which had to do with organized crime, bribes, and blackmail. Every single one of these operations have resulted in criminal indictments. And I'm sure there's still some that are ongoing now in 2020 because shit in Cook County is crazy. Yeah, Uh, out of our mind over here. Yeah. And you can, like I said, there was a lot of people indicted, charged, and found guilty of these crimes. And it was, I really kind of wanted to, to look at the operation as a whole. We might come back to this and talk about specific cases, but damn, there is a lot on this. Yeah. Uh, there is a great documentary. Um, it's about 25 minutes long and I'll put a link to that in the show notes that you guys should check it out. But they, uh, interview the FBI agents and Terry Hake, um, who actually did go on to write a book about Operation Greylord. It's one of these things that I find really fascinating, it's, and especially when you're talking about like secret recordings and judges' mm-hmm. chambers and things. I'm like, yes. Um, <laughs> so I would definitely go and 
check those out. But yeah, that was uh, Operation Greylord. Wow, I would just love to be the person that names all of those. <laughs> I know. Just I my want mission that job. In life. Well, you know what? Our mission right now, we'll call it Operation Podcast, where all you right. should go and, and listen to this podcast. Lucas from Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits. I'd like to start a movement where we spend more time loving on our friends because although friends are important to us, they're often in the shadow of other relationships. So if you want to love on your friendships a little bit more, embrace friendship a little bit more, or just appreciate your friendships a little bit more, then this podcast is for you. We'll explore all the different ways friendships take place, share the amazing stories of friendship, and discuss best practices for the difficulties that friends may experience. It's time to embrace friendships because without our friends, who would we be? So check out Best Forevers on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting listening venues. And be sure to follow Best Forevers Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right, guys, that has been our episode. Thank you again for joining us for another week of awful stories of horrible corruption and police things. It's Pol- terrible. police things. <laughs> um, we do have one event to talk to you guys about, Janelle. We sure do. So... As you may know, we are in the Elgin Fringe Festival, and this year it's going to be a little different. It's going to be all digital, but it's going to be for an entire month um, from September to October, so you're going to be able to access us a little bit more. So uh, we're going to have a video up uh, in September, and if you go to elginfringefestival.com, you can get information on purchasing tickets, um, where you'll be able to access it. For how long you'll be able to access it. You can get a festival pass to look at everything that they're going to have. Or you can just come and watch our show. But, uh, they're um, going to have so much good stuff. It's Yeah, I would highly recommend getting a festival pass because there's going to be yeah. a lot of interesting things. This is the first year that they're doing it digitally. They wanted to keep the Fringe Festival because a lot of the Fringe Festivals were canceled. So mm-hmm. we're going to be the few that are actually going to keep going in a digital sphere. So keep your eyes open. It's be great for everyone who can't come to see us, who live just yeah. a little bit further away. Um, but yeah, dot yeah, for all of your information coming to you very soon. I'm very excited. This is going to be an, an interesting fringe. Yeah, yeah. This is something we're not totally familiar with doing, and I don't think you know this is the first virtual one they've ever done. So I'm real excited. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah i don't think i've ever even heard of a digital or virtual fringe so this will be interesting no no we are uh pioneers yes i consider myself a pioneer in the digital fringe (laughs) 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 um that might be uh being very generous anyway (laughs) um if you enjoyed this episode, you want to hear more like this, you can go to our website, badtastecrimecast.com. There you'll also be able to find places where you can buy merch if you want 
t-shirt or a tank top or a bag. Um, yeah. You can also find our our donate page too if you want to join our Patreon for some exclusive content. There's tons of stuff up there to keep you busy. Yes. And we'll be releasing some more stuff. We kind of took a little break there because obviously COVID and we were doing shows on YouTube. So you can watch those as well. Those are available um, if you're missing our faces. (laughs) I forget that we have a YouTube channel now. Um, I have discovered that I can, I'm I'm working on getting all of our past episodes up on the YouTube, but moving forward, all of our, uh, all of these episodes are also going to be released to YouTube along with all of our regular uh, podcasting platforms, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all that kind of stuff. They're all going to be on YouTube, too. So, yes, I know some people prefer that. I don't don't know. But they're there. You can search it. I I was kind of amazed when I found out that you could do that, but <laughs> it might, and it might take me a while because I'm about, I think both you and I are about to get real busy here in the next like month. Yeah, I'm never not busy, so. <laughs> okay. Well, I will be getting real busy here in the next month, so we will, we will see how that goes. But, um, mm-hmm. I think that's all we got. Yeah. Does that sound? Did we get everything? We did. You guys stay safe and try not to get corrupted. our sound and editing is by tiff fullman our music is by jason zakshevsky the enigma this has been the bad taste crime cast we will see you in two weeks goodbye so long Let me do a little. <clears throat> <laughs>